So it's been a few weeks. We had uh, Easter, of course, and Kevin teaching on Palm Sunday, and I brought an Easter message last week. But we began at the beginning of this year a chronological journey through the Gospels, which means I'm taking all four Gospels and I'm meshing them together in chronological order as best I can, and I will get it wrong sometimes. Um, and we're going to get it right more often than wrong. As far as timeline, it gets a little difficult. We went through that uh, last week before Easter. We did the five-day fast, and we followed Matthew's account from Palm Sunday all the way through the resurrection. And we find that the order of Matthew and Mark kind of fluctuate just a little bit, and it's hard to put it all together. But I'm working on it, and I think it would be an interesting study for us to take Scripture as given to us from the four gospel writers and put it together in a timeline that would closely represent the ministry of Jesus Christ. And right now we find ourselves kind of in between the first and second year, technically in the second year, but the first and second year of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He will, once we get through the gospel of John chapter Three, we'll finish three today, and part of four next week, we'll find that he'll begin his Galilean ministry, and that will officially kind of set off the second year of ministry where he's already been up in Capernaum into that area, but uh, not really making it his home base from where he would minister from. And so we're kind of in between the end of the first year of ministry, the beginning of the second year of ministry. And a few weeks ago, we looked at Nicodemus and his coming to Jesus by night and telling Jesus that, teacher, we know that you are from God so that no man can do the things that you're doing unless God has sent him. And Jesus kind of pressed into Nicodemus, whom Jesus called the teacher of Israel. And so, Hasdodaskalos, uh, he had the definite article on that teacher word, that you being the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things, that you must be born again. And that began that questioning from Nicodemus, to Jesus about how can a man be born again? How can a man, when he is old, enter into the second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus responding, saying, that which is born of water is water, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, you must be born again. So don't be amazed that I say to you, you have to be born again. And we closed off before our Easter celebration. We closed off with John 3:16, a verse that we all know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But that wasn't the end of the account. It was just a good place to put the brakes on for that one Sunday. And we're going to pick up now where we left off a few weeks ago. And we're going to find that Jesus... The remainder of what Jesus said to Nicodemus, we're also going to look at the response of John the Baptist when he was questioned from those Jews, the religious rulers, trying to really cause a dispute between Jesus and John the Baptist. And there was a question of baptism. And John's going to deal with the response there to close us out in John chapter 3. So today... We have a message that comes right from the text itself. 
where John said in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. So I titled today's message, he must increase. John 3 verses 17 through 36, condemned or not condemned, verses 17 through 21. Decrease or increase, 22 through 30, and he who is from above, 31 through 36. And so I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our first point, condemned or not condemned, John 3, 17 through 21, and then briefly just ask God to bless the teaching of his word. John 3, picking up in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not Come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And so, Father, once again, bless now the teaching of your word to your people here in this place this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So no condemnation or condemned already. We find in verses 17 and 18 that Jesus saying that my father did not send me into the world to condemn the world, but that the world itself might be saved. And then he goes on to explain to us that those who believe in Jesus, they are not condemned. But those who do not believe in Jesus, that they stand condemned already and i think this is something that so many people misunderstand that they already stand in con condemnation because they don't believe in jesus that is because we have all been born with an inherent sin nature from adam and eve at the fall in the garden of eden when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entered into our world as descendants of the first man adam as descendants of adam and eve we all stand in this condemnation just the fact of our birth we have this sin nature that we have received from our parents but Jesus said, God did not send me to condemn the world, but that through me, the world might be saved. The word of God tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, as we looked at last week over the Easter celebration from Good Friday to uh, Resurrection Sunday, that there on what we deem today Good Friday, not that that day was good in the sense of the torture that Jesus went through, but good because he bore our sins upon the cross that we can now stand uncondemned before God. As Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this life, there are two distinct paths. 
The first path is an old and beaten down, trodden down path, path that was first traveled by Adam and Eve as they searched for knowledge apart from God. If you read the creation accounts in the book of Genesis and you find that God gave Adam the privilege to name all the animals, that Adam, unlike our world would like to teach, did not begin without intelligence. He was highly intelligent. He was created in the image of God. And God allowed him to name all the animals and what they were named by Adam. That was their name. So if you wonder why an elephant is an elephant, just... Blame Adam. He's the one that came up with these things. But he was highly intelligent. And yet, though he had a unique relationship with God there in the garden and was given Eve to be his wife, and they walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening, they had this fellowship with God. They sought something beyond that fellowship. They wanted knowledge apart from God. That's when Satan entered the picture, was able to tempt them, to pull them to a new direction, a new path. And yes, that first path is an old and beaten down path that has been journeyed and traveled by so many since that day. But the second path was first walked by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it tells us, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam became a living being, and because of Adam and Eve and procreation, they gave life through birth, the process. We're all here as a result of that today physically. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam, or we might say the second Adam, became that life-giving spirit. And it's Jesus who gives us access to the free gift of salvation in order that we might reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, that we will reign with Christ one day. First Corinthians 15:22 says, "As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive." So life, Jesus said, God didn't send me to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved, that we can have everlasting life. But there's this battle that's been raging on since the Garden of Eden of light versus darkness. And it's not the whole Star Wars thing and the dark side and the force and all that. There is a legitimate battle that has been raging on since Adam and Eve fell there in the garden. And even before that, in the heavens, when Satan rebelled against God himself and drew a third of the angels with him in that rebellion. And he says in verse 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And this is true to this day that men love darkness rather than light. Peter explained it this way in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens of old were made, the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. By the word of God the heavens were made. And what do we find 
in the very, what our world might say, the very intellectual class today, uh, class race of people saying that they willfully forget we evolved, that we ourselves can become gods. And they keep spinning it and spinning it and spinning it until we have children raised up, not even believing that God created the heavens and the earth, but believing that we evolved from a lower form to a higher form. And they keep spinning these things. I, just this week, I was uh, busy doing things around the church and didn't have time for lunch. So I was doing the banking on this particular day for the church and drove by the gas station and saw that it shot up at this particular gas station by like 60, 70 cents. And I thought, oh, my, I better run up to Wisconsin and get some gas. If it goes up here, I just go across the line and get it for about a buck cheaper, whatever it is up there. And uh, so I did that. And uh, on the way up, I stopped in to get a couple of slices of pizza and no longer. I thought the signs are down. They're not doing the lunch pizza anymore. Well, they are, but you don't get a free soda anymore. Inflation has caused that to be two bucks more if you want to drink. Long story short, the gal serving me lives down the road from our church. And uh, I said, yeah, we had those high winds yesterday. It took out a lot of our equipment at the church. And she said, yeah, that climate change, it's really something, isn't it? And I said, Really? Climate change? Do you think maybe it's springtime and we just had a lot of wind <laughs> blowing around in the area? But they keep spinning it and spinning it, saying it and saying it until suddenly, and you know, if it's not COVID, it's got to be climate change. They have to have something to war against. If it's not male and female, it's going to be the trans issue. They have to have something to war against in order that they'll be able to step in and get the world that they desire. Thankfully, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that through him he might be saved. Again, Peter, 2 Peter 3, 7 says, But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They willfully forget that God created the heavens and the earth. They try to become gods themselves. And yet God said, God is now preserving our world, but preserving it for what? for judgment that is coming. One day, God will judge this world a second time. Until that day, as long as Jesus continues to preserve the world, there is opportunity for people to be saved. The apostle Paul spoke about this in Acts 17, 30 and 31, saying, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, Jesus, in case you don't know that. He has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. So God has given each of us a choice to receive the testimony of his light or to reject it to this day. The world loves darkness more than light. 
But Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows after me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Here's the thing. The world hates the light. Verse 20. Everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there is an evident war going on from the world against the church. And we've seen this tick up over the last two years when we've had states where um, they have arrested pastors in the United States uh, find them, some pastors, some uh, two to three million dollars worth of fines against the pastors and the churches that they pastor, especially out in California, over in Maine. Um, one of the Calvary pastors over there having a real tough go of it because they had a, a restoration ministry in their church of uh, helping people restore from drugs and alcohol into faith in Jesus Christ. And they said that they could meet together, but they could not do Bible study or sing. And it's like, well, we're the church. We do Bible study and we sing. That's what the church is called to do. It's like, yeah, you can meet with your guys, but just don't do the church stuff while you're meeting with the guys to help them to recover. And it's just ridiculous. The world hates the light, and they're warring against the light. There was a show, I'm going to put it on the radio on Friday, that uh, David Fiorazzo did in Stand Up for the Truth with James, James Cox, I believe is his name, was arrested, put in jail in Canada, and he's got a book coming out talking about his experience with the government up there. But... He, in that interview, he said, there was a point to where I asked my lawyer, what is this going to cost me? And he said, you're going to probably spend a couple of months in jail. And he said, okay. He counted the cost, and he spent more than two months in jail. And they even put him in solitary confinement. They were trying to break him. He had a free pass to get out of jail as long as he would conform to what they wanted. And he refused to conform. That's happening in our world today, and it's only going to get worse, and here's the reason why. Everyone practicing evil hates the light. They don't come to the light because it would expose their deeds as being evil. So the word practicing evil, it's a Greek word that refers to performing repeatedly, habitually. This is their lifestyle, and there are some people who get very good at sin. It causes them, though, to remain in the darkness. Romans 6, verses 13 and 14 says, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instrument, instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sadly today, and I... I I pulled this out from 2018. It reminded me of, uh, I don't know why I was there. Maybe I heard something, but this goes back a few years. But it really speak, spoke a lot to me, a lot of application to it. And I'd heard back, in, I guess, in 2018, that's where this quote comes from, um, that somebody asked 
why do pirates wear a patch over one eye? And the logical thing was that somebody poked their eye out with a sword and they had to wear a patch. But let me read another reason why they might have worn a patch. Pirates frequently had to move above and below decks from daylight to near darkness. The smart ones wore a patch over one eye to keep it dark adapted outside. When the pirates went below decks, they could switch the pat patch to the outdoor eye and could easily see in the darkness, helping them to fight and plunder the vessels. And I fear that believers today are very comfortable of wearing the patch. You know, they have the patch of darkness and the, the eye of light. And they're comfortable switching back and forth between the two, going above and below the deck from faith from inside the church to sin out in the world. We should never get comfortable, but that's what we find our world is doing. What Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 5.20 is so true today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Michael McClure out in California, pastor there uh, two years ago with the restrictions, the lockdowns, $3 million in fines. In San Diego, San Diego County, where they were at, they said strip clubs during COVID lockdown, strip clubs can open. Churches remain closed. Strip clubs, good or evil? Well, it depends on whether you're light or darkness. It just doesn't make sense. In fact, they won. They wanted to settle with him because they knew that they had no grounds to stand upon these ridiculous things that they had, and Michael would not settle out of court. He said, no, we're going to take it all the way. We're going to force you to see and let the world see what you were doing to the church. But though another testimony of this, when they began COVID and opened up again, they, he said they were running about 500 And now they run, I believe, between 3,000 and 5,000. People are looking for hope. The world may try to shut us down, but the light of Christ is greater. He who is in the world is not greater. Uh, He who is of the world is not greater than Jesus Christ himself. So 21 says, But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So he who does the truth, a Greek word that means to make or to do or to keep, he who keeps the truth, we have a choice how to conduct ourselves in this light. In this life, we can either follow the true light, Jesus Christ, or we can walk in the path of darkness. Before Easter, I had shared when we were finishing up John 3.16 at the close of that message, I shared about uh, the time in my life in my early 20s that I struggled with my surety of my salvation. I just had a struggle. I wasn't sure if I was saved. And it wasn't that I didn't believe that Jesus Christ could save. I believed Jesus saved. I just did not know that if Jesus has actually saved me. And so I went through this period, and it took, from my recollection of it, from about 21 to 23 years old. It took some time. But the good things I did during that time, I think, helped me to discover 
that peace that I was looking for. It helped me to receive a word from the Lord that I am standing upon to this day. The good things that I did is Lily and I and our two children at the time, we continued to, and yes, I said 21 to 23. We had little ones running around then. We were young parents, but continue to go to church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. Uh, I taught Sunday school. I was struggling, but I was able to teach the truth. And that was a struggle that was going on with me. I didn't relate my struggles to the students. I just taught the word of God. I was in the word of God. I was exploring the Word of God. I was reading through the Word of God from cover to cover. I was attending church. I was serving at the church. I played in a Christian band. Um, And so we did concerts, and I would give testimony. All along, I was personally just had this battle going on that no one else knew that was going on except me and Jesus. And I think it was because of those steps of not running away from the light, but staying near the light, staying near to Christ, staying in the church, continuing to serve, that the Lord gave me more light until he gave me the peace that I was searching for. John 1.4 tells us, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that was the true light. John 1, 9, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus is that true light who shines in the darkness of our world. For God the Father sent his only begotten Son, that we might believe that God is and receive his Son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts, that we might be saved. Those who believe in God, the point that Jesus was making to Nicodemus, those who believe in God, and receive Jesus as their Savior are not condemned. So now the scene changes, and we have Jesus and his disciples baptizing, John the Baptist and his disciples baptizing. For a while, they ministered and served in the same region. And I'll just pick up verses 22 through 24 to get us into our second point, decrease or increase. It says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Inan near Salim because there was much water there and came And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So it's given us a little of the timeline there. John's not in prison yet. And it's not that Jesus was baptizing. We'll read in John 4, 1 and 2 next week. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and then John explains to us, the Apostle John John 4, 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. His disciples were doing the baptizing for him. But that would be something, huh? Who'd you get baptized by? The apostle Paul, Peter? Oh, I was baptized by Jesus. Well, we may not be able to say that and brag in that way, but we can all say that, you know, I've been saved by Jesus. That's one thing that we all have in common for those who love Christ and have come into the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus and John both preached the same message of repentance. In Matthew 3, 1, John would proclaim, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's actually Matthew 3, 2. And then when Jesus began preaching in Matthew 4, 17, he preached, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. People were hungry for the things of God. Therefore, they took steps to get right with God, just like me at 21 through 23 when I was struggling with my faith. I continued to take steps in the faith that brought me nearer to Jesus and brought me the peace that I was desperately searching for at that time. Their baptism it was that those steps that they were taking, they were hearing the word of God being preached. Their hearts were being pricked. They were saying, what should we do? John would say, do acts of repentance, uh, as he would explain to the people then. But the baptism was part of that. It's a belief, it wasn't believer's baptism, but a baptism of repentance, turning their hearts toward the things of God once again. So 25 and 26, we find that there was a dispute about purification. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So you may have noticed that John did not go into the issue of the argument, the dispute about purification. What he did point out is that they were trying to uh, put John the Baptist and Jesus on two different fronts, trying to force them to pick sides. John the Baptist, who had this popular following, many people coming and being baptized. Now, not as many people were coming. Jesus now was baptizing more than he. But regarding the rituals of purification, the manner of which Jews were purified or ceremonially washed, perhaps that's how they looked at the baptism, this ceremonial washing, this manner of purification was a big deal to the Orthodox Jews. You had to do it in a certain way. In Matthew 7, 3 and 4, it says, The Pharisees, all the Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the elders. When they would come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed. And of course, we think, well, of course, mom always told me to wash up before supper. But little boy running around playing outside and uh, coming in for dinner or lunch and washing up may not have even meant that soap was used <laughs> back then. I'll use soap now. But I still won't wash in the method that the Jews were accustomed, the ceremonial washing of having running water poured over the hands from the Fingertips, allowing the water to drip off the elbows, that there'd be no condemnation. It was more like they were getting ready for surgery. Right, ready? Got the rubber gloves? Go to eat. It was a big deal for them. Their argument about purification spurred this contention that they were trying to bring up between Jesus and John the Baptist, but there was no contention between the two. John's was a baptism of repentance. First Peter 3.21 says, 
There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we could say this baptism of repentance was, it is different than believer's baptism. Both use water as the element, but John's baptism pointed people toward the coming Messiah, as John would introduce, as they said, to the rabbi, to John the Baptist, in verse 26, he who was with you, to whom you testified. What was the testimony? Behold the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. Baptism of repentance was pointing people to Jesus, while believer's baptism points us back to the work of Jesus on the cross, his atoning work for our sins. Not that baptism saves us, but it identifies us with Christ Jesus. Again, uh, John's baptism versus the baptism of Christ in Acts 19.4. This is Paul this time. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. So John's baptism was pointing people to Jesus. But he considered himself a friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom. John 3, verses 27 through 30, we pick up in verses 27 to 28. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness of me that I said, I am not the Christ but have been sent before him. John came in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It was John's great privilege to introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said to them, I am not Elijah. I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. And yet, as a prophet of God, John cried out to the people saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And like the servants who repaired the roads before the highway, uh, before a king would travel on a roadway or a highway, they called these in the Old Testament times, in the days of the Romans and the Greeks, the king's highways. Before a king would travel, they would fix up the roads, they'd get rid of the potholes. They would make it a smooth course. That's what John was doing. He was taking out the rough places. As was prophesied in Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4, which says, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth. As the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John exalted the humble. He lowered the prideful. He straightened out the crooked hearts. He smoothed out their roughness that they might, he might reveal to them Christ their King. So he kind of connected himself as the best man. In verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In the days of Christ, it was the friend of the bridegroom who had retrieved the bride for the groom. When the house was ready and prepared, and the bride was, would await the groom's coming. But the friend of the bridegroom had a significant role in that. And so John says, as the friend of the bridegroom, I rejoice that all are coming to Christ. That's what the Lord called me to do is to point others to Jesus. And we are to rejoice. The Bible in the New Testament has a lot to say about rejoicing. In various situations, some of these you would think, I don't want to rejoice in that situation. And yet in the New Testament, the Bible has a lot to say about rejoicing. We are to rejoice with others. Romans 12:15. Rejoice with others. We are to rejoice in hope. Romans 12:12. 12, 12. We are to rejoice that Christ is preached. Philippians 1.18, rejoice that Christ is preached, Philippians 1.18. We're to rejoice when we suffer shame for Jesus' name, Acts 5.41. That's one of those that we might not want to uh, rejoice in. When we suffer shame for the name of Christ, we're to rejoice. Rejoice that we get to partake in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 4.13 Rejoice and be exceedingly glad that our, for our heavenly reward. That's one that we all could jump on. Real easy, right? Hey, we get rewards in heaven. Rejoice, Matthew 5.1 We are, Philippians 4.4, 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We're to always rejoice in the Lord. Although the story of John is found in the New Testament, John the Baptist belongs more with the Old Testament. As a prophet of God, he called himself the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus, when talking about John, in Matthew 11, verses 9 through 11, he said, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you that more than a prophet... For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your faith. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will preserve your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John's greatness was in his role as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. There were many prophets of the Old Testament, many prophets in the New Testament, apostles, disciples, preachers, and teachers. But only one had the privilege to be the very first to introduce the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John says, verse 30, He must increase but I must decrease. John's mission was to point others to Jesus. And it was not about how many people heard his preaching or were baptized by him in the Jordan, but about pointing others to Jesus. And the same should be true for ministries today. 
It's not about the number of people that attend our churches, how many followers we might have on social media, but about pointing others to Jesus. We need to be like the four friends who brought their friend to Jesus. They knew Jesus was in town. There was a crowd at the house where Jesus was teaching. They brought their friend who was a paralytic, who could not walk, could not come to Jesus on his own. But these four friends were so concerned for their friend that they moved, we might say, they moved heaven and hell to make sure that this man would descend before Jesus and at least have that opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Well, when they saw the house was filled to the brim and overcrowding at the doors and windows, they went up on the roof and they began to break through. And I just kind of envisioned this as some of the guys on the roof, the other guys looking in the window and they were kind of lining up a little over here. Yeah, right there. Dig there that they could drop this man right in front of Jesus. And the interesting thing about that, when Jesus, it says, saw the faith of his friends, he said, your sins are forgiven you. It does not say when Jesus saw the faith of the man. It says when Jesus saw the faith of his friends. It means that we can impact people in such ways that we can help bring them to Jesus. And because of our faith of what Christ can do in an individual's life, that person can then be touched by Jesus. Luke 5.20 says, When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Of course, if we know the account that they argued How can anyone say your sins are forgiven you? Or anyone can say that. It doesn't mean that it actually happened. So Jesus had to prove it by causing the man to be made whole, telling him to rise and walk, which he did. Paul understood that it was not about those who did uh, what they did in the church. People in Corinth were saying, you know, Apollos is greater than Paul. Paul is greater than Apollos. And Paul would flat out say to them in a letter in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8, saying, Who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We get to be partakers, though. I can't save you, but I can point you to the one who is able to save, Jesus Christ. And I get a joy about having that bit of participation in people's lives. All believers must be willing to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And we close out, he who comes from above, verses 31 through 36. In verses 31 through 33, it says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly. And speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. But he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So he's talking about 
earthlings, those who are of the earth, compared to Jesus Christ who came from heaven, who has testified to us about the things of God. Many have rejected the testimony of Jesus, verse 33, but those who have received the testimony of Jesus Christ, just the fact of our salvation certifies that God is true. John said in John 3.13, saying this to Nicodemus, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And then going back to the first Adam and the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.47 and 48, the first man was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So we are of this earth, but Christ was from heaven. He came to the earth. He presented God's word to us. Jesus Christ is above all. And John 1, 3 and 4 says, All things were made through him. Without him nothing was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. John 8:26, Jesus testified that God is true, saying, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me, my Father who sent me, is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. He who is from above, he teaches us the things of God. Like John, we have a choice to receive the testimony of Jesus. Those who receive his testimony, we certified. It's a Greek word that it's a Greek word that refers to the signet ring. That you certify it's true. So it's got the stamp of approval. If you got a certified letter, you got that stamp on it. In the Greek, they had the signet rings where they put the wax seal on there and they would stamp the ring or have the stamp of it. We certify that God is true. 1 John 5, 9 and 11 and 12 says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. Saying the same thing in a different book of the Bible. 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. God sent Jesus to declare God's truth to us. He was fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. When He was baptized by John the Baptist in John 1, 33 and 34, it tells us when Jesus came up out of the water that the Spirit descended upon them. And John would testify that the Spirit remained upon Jesus. He had the Holy Spirit of God in full measure. 
Jesus is the beloved of the Father. As when he was baptized again in Matthew 3, 17, I heard a voice from heaven. John the Baptist, I believe, heard this voice. Jesus, maybe others heard a rumble of thunder. But the words were this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then three years later at the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John witnessing the transfigured Christ, Again, they heard this voice from heaven, Matthew 17, 5. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. God has placed all things in the hands of Jesus. John 1, 3. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in the heavens and that are on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. We owe everything to Jesus Everyone on this planet owes everything to Jesus, whether they believe that Jesus is or not. The very life they have is account of Jesus and his work in this world. 36 says, he who believes in the son, though, has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the only place in John's gospel where this God's wrath is mentioned. According to John 3, 16, 18, and 36, those who believe in Jesus have, already have, everlasting life. Those who do not believe in him shall not see life. Those who believe in Jesus, I'm going to be in heaven one day, but it's because of what I did on this earth when I was seven years old and receiving Jesus into my heart. That moment at seven years old, even though I struggled at 21 to 23, I had everlasting life. I'll stand upon the truth of God's word, not how I feel. For a while, I let feelings get in the way. That's a dangerous thing. We live in a world where a lot of people are letting their feelings get in the way of truth, of wisdom, of what's right and what's wrong. But for those who do not believe in him, the wrath of God already abides or remains upon them. They are condemned already to stay in that state until they die physically means they'll stay in that state throughout eternity. No purgatory, no working your way to heaven once you die from this earth. It's here and now that we decide for Christ. We all bear the image of the first man, Adam. But only those who believe in Jesus Christ will bear the image of the second man, the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15:49 says, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And without Jesus, we stand condemned, unable to obtain everlasting life. So the choice is yours. How are you standing today? 
Are you standing in faith in the work of Jesus Christ? Are you standing upon your own wisdom and logic? Whatever wisdom and logic you might have. You standing upon what others say? Like a friend of mine once who told me when I was witnessing to him, my wife read the Bible and told me, said, well, don't depend on your wife to do the reading for you. Even if you're a Christian, don't depend on your wife. Read it for yourself. Hear what the word of God says for yourself. Because we don't come to salvation through mom and dad or grandparents or a child. We come through salvation by personally accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Each one has to make that choice. Let's go ahead and stand together. It's been a while since we've done this, but uh, we have... I changed it up on you guys. We have a church motto that stands behind me each Sunday, and we're going to go through this once again. And it has been a while. I looked in all my notes so far this year, and I haven't done this. And so we're going to do it today. So we have a church model that says believe, receive, grow, and go. And the believe, the Word of God tells us that in order to believe that we first need to believe that God is. And so we say together, Hebrews 11:6. but without faith it is impossible to please Him For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 First step of faith is believing that there is a God and not just any God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Secondly, we have to receive Jesus. We say together, Romans 5.17 For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 So it's not just about believing that God created the heavens and the earth, but receiving the gift of God, His Son, Jesus Christ. As believers, then, we must grow in our faith And we say together, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18. And this is a form of growing. Our study breakfasts, that's a form of growing. Um, Listening to... Christian radio or Christian podcast, a form of growing, sitting and just simply reading and meditating on the Word of God. We have to grow in our faith, but it's not just to become very smart to win the Bible quizzes when the church gets together and have a game night or something. It's like, oh, I beat Pastor John. I had that answer right. No, it's about going. And so we say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. I always flub it up. I'm, in my mind, I'm getting ready for the next thing. And the next thing, 
Let's close in prayer. Pastor Kevin will be down front as we close out in one last song. Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word from the Gospel of John. But Lord, bless us as we continue through this journey through the Gospels this year and maybe into next year, as long as it takes us, Lord. May we, as a church, grow in our faith. May we not only grow in our faith, but take the growth and put it to good use that we would go, that we could help others believe that there is a God to help others receive Jesus as their Savior, that they in turn, as believers, would grow and go, that the cycle would continue on and on. Help us, Lord. We need you. And these days that we live in, Lord, there's a lot going on in this world, but nothing is a surprise to you. In fact, many of these things you have already foretold in your word. So keep us close to your word. Keep us dependent upon you. Keep us trusting in you always and in every way. And help us, Lord, to be lights of truth to others, but pointing them to the true light. You, Lord Jesus, our Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.